What's good, everybody? Today is Thursday, February 22nd, and this is another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. We're up to episode number 76, and today we got a special guest with us today from ESPN. We got Phil Murphy. Um, I know him as the intern from almost 10 years ago, but the man's been doing the damn thing since then. He's come on up, and he's um, definitely one of the main faces in mixed martial arts that you will see on the worldwide leader so um phil thank you for taking some time out and joining us tonight thank you so much for having me man and i know no matter uh you know where i go in this industry to a lot of people who you and i know well i will always be the intern hey so, man that's how it's gonna okay, go wearing that label <laughs> <laughs> so first and foremost man i want to say congratulations on the wedding it's been what a month right yeah Just coming up on a, coming up in a month and i think i got this marriage thing pretty much figured out hey man you gotta wow. write the book on it want- world record Shawan is our, our in-house therapist as well, too. So if you ever have any questions about how to be, what is it, father to what? You got triplets, right, Shawan? I got wow. uh, the twins. I got four kids, basically. Five-year-old, three 15-year-olds. All girls. Yeah. So, yeah, if you ever need some uh, therapy there, uh, Shawan's your man to talk to. <laughs> All right, so noted. I, I, keep, I keep on training martial arts because they gang up on me. I got to be able to take them out quick before <laughs> they overpower me. They're all athletes, too, so it's, it's, it's a rough day. <laughs> every day i believe that so with that man we're going to go ahead and kind of jump right into it we definitely want to make sure we get the most out of your time and kind of pick your brain about what's going on in mixed martial arts uh so we're going to as always we try to hit on the some of the biggest news stories from this week our boy conor mcgregor kind of uh swept, swept in and, and dropped some bombs on us today i was actually looking at that right before we jumped online so um i kind of want to start there i know i mentioned some other news stories first but this is kind of big if you did not see um, Connor basically let news out on his Instagram post that he was talking to the UFC about fighting Frankie Edgar last minute at UFC 222, 222 which was, I think it was just coming up in the next few weeks. Um, what do you guys think about this? Is this Connor kind of flexing his power, kind of trying to take away some of the promotional strength from the UFC or just him blowing smoke? We know that he, he was struggling to make 145 to begin with, but what were some of your thoughts when you first saw this? Uh, Phil, we're going to throw it to you first. Yeah, I mean, everyone was, as you have to do with Connor, jumping at getting a story out. Here's what Connor said. He said he wanted to be on UFC 222, and he said he will fight again. Um, I mean, I, uh, Connor is a very intelligent man. Um, he He's one of the most intellectual. I, I was fortunate enough to have, uh, sit in front of him for about 35 minutes for an exclusive um, about two and a half years ago. And uh, he's one of the most intellectually engaging people I, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of talking to in this business. Um, and he's very, very calculated. So I, I, I don't think the UFC would have turned down the opportunity to add him to this card. I mean, you know that any card you put Conor McGregor as the headliner on, it's probably doing seven-figure buys. Um, and all due respect to what they have going at UFC 222, I mean, I think they'd be happy with 200000 250000 with that lineup. So to me, there's zero chance the UFC is turning it down because they don't have time to promote it. That fight, Conor promotes itself. And that kind of gets to what I think he was doing. Um, you know, it's been made public his, to a degree, what he wants in the UFC. And he wants some kind of, you know, small but stake in the company, something that they never have would have considered for anything before. And I think this was him just flexing a little bit, showing that he has promotional power unlike anyone else in the sport now. If you think about it, with John Jones, we should be hearing in, in, in the not-too-distant future how far he's, how long he's going to be sidelined. You know, Ronda Rousey's functionally out of the sport. Any of their true A-list transcendent stars, aside from Connor, 
aren't eligible to be walking to an octagon right now. So Connor knows he has all the leverage. I mean, the UFC had a card with two the heavyweight title fight and the light heavyweight title fight on it, and it got somewhere between three hundred and three hundred forty thousand buys. I mean, that that was that's below the floor of what pay-per-view buys were five years ago. So that's this is Connor showing I have the leverage. I, and I, again, it's all conjecture, but I think it's Connor showing I have the leverage, and the demands I have are you know almost extortionate, but justifiable given the fact that. He drives the ship, and uh, I think that's it's just him showing the kind of promotional power he has. And I, I think also it's just a little stroke of the ego, too, because it's been a while since we've been talking about him legitimately. Yeah, we it's definitely been a while. In fact, it seems like we've been talking more about Floyd Mayweather coming over in, into MMA rather than talking about Conor. Um, but he did say some couple of things that kind of caught my eye. I never once believed the idea of him um, stepping in on late notice to fight at featherweight against uh, Frankie Edgar on a few weeks notice I don't I don't think that's a fight that anyone takes but he mentioned that he wants to fight two times in 2018 so we're already coming up on March so Schwan tell me what do you think about that probability do we see him step back into the octagon twice this year if he, I mean if he wants to basically I mean he gets what he wants and the UFC is trying to make that money back if he wants whoever he wants he'll get however many times he wants to fight he will get to fight I mean even though everybody likes to act like he's just one of them or he's not a big deal, the fact of the matter is he is a big deal. And anything he puts his mind to to execute will get executed by the UFC because they want to make their money. They want to slow kind of the uh, backslide they've had. And he, he's a shortcut. He's a cheat code, basically, at this at this stage. His name has never been bigger. After that fight with Mayweather, that was months ago, and he's, his, his name is still one of the top two names in combat sports, if not top five names in sports altogether. So if he wants two fights in 2018, he'll get two fights in 2018. Just as a side note, though, if I was Frankie Edgar and they and he wanted to fight me, I would not take the fight short notice because beating Conor McGregor, yeah, that does a lot for you, but I would have to renegotiate my contract before I fight Conor McGregor because Conor McGregor comes with a lot of stuff, and I want my money on the front and the back end because there's no guarantee Frankie beats him, so at least I want to be like Eddie Alvarez and get my money on the front end. Eddie Alvarez, Nate Diaz, I'm getting my money up front. If he if, if he signs on for the fight three, three weeks, four weeks before it, we need to renegotiate the contract because I'm no longer fighting Ortega or whoever. I'm fighting the biggest draw in mixed martial arts. I want to be paid like I'm fighting the biggest draw in mixed martial arts. And what about you, Phil? Kind of piggyback off of that. Do you think we see Connor back into the octagon two times this year? And I guess who? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, there, there are a couple decent options for him. I agree. I don't think he's going back down to 145. Um when I, when I spent some time with him for that story, his, his de facto manager at the time was a guy named Tom Egan, who's UFC veteran from UFC 93, one of child's, uh, Connor's child boyhood friends from Dublin. And he and I actually became friendly. He's a great dude. Um, he and Connor have since, you know, kind of gone their separate ways. Um, but Tom told me, you know, first off the record, then on the record, so I'm, I'm, I'm good to share it, that Connor said he was never going back down to 145. It's not. It was a tough weight cut for him before he was fighting at one. He, he took any fights at 170, um, and it was you know as he's getting into his late 20s now, that weight cut doesn't get any easier to make. So um, I don't think he was ever going to fight Frankie Edgar at 145, especially on short notice. Now, you know, with Connor, the the rule of thumb is never say never, and that's what makes him so captivating as a fighter. Um, anytime you know. He was really put up against the wall, say the Jose Aldo fight. He stepped to the plate and, and delivered. Um, 
and he loves proving people wrong. That said, you know, there, there are some very real hurdles with what he wants with his UFC contract. Um, and I, I, I think it's an aggressive thing. He doesn't have to fight twice this year. He's not in a financial position where he has to. So if you're giving me the over-under at one and a half fights for Connor in 2018, I'm taking the under. Uh, I think I think we'll see him, if not at International Fight Week in July, we'll see him in one of the big shows toward the end of the year. But if it is toward the end of the year, I mean, we're talking about a two-year layoff since we've seen this guy in the octagon. As far as opponent, you know, there are a few options out there. Um, I, I think one that people aren't talking about enough is a super fight against Max Holloway at 155. Um, now, Dana says that it, Connor will have to fight the winner of Tony Ferguson and Khabib Nurmagomedov, but we can go down the list of times Dana has said, and then that hasn't come to pass. So, you know, and Dana knows, he'll say it with a smile that he's a promoter. Um, you know, sometimes the situation changes, but I, I don't think Connor's next fight will be, especially if it's Khabib, because we all know that's, that's a very difficult matchup for him. So I would say Max Holloway's a possibility. I also would throw out uh, the possibility of like a GSP at 170. Um, if, if given enough time for GSP to come back down to that weight, which if it is an end-of-the-year fight, wouldn't be a problem for him. Um, and lastly, I would think ter- Tony Ferguson isn't a terrible option because Tony Ferguson isn't as good of a promoter as he thinks he is, but he's still a pretty good promoter of fights. And he, uh, I, I could see him and Connor having some fun at press conferences and selling some more pay-per-views. So I know that's that's three names. It's not really narrowing it down, but I, I think we see Connor once, and I think, I think we see him either in July or like in the big November card. What's interesting... Go ahead. Isn't Connor basically at the point like he's basically echoing Floyd Mayweather to the point where anybody he fights could sell whether they're on a win streak, a losing streak, if they have an exciting style. I mean, he could fight Justin Gaethje and that would do a million buys. Yeah. And have bias. I mean, he he's at the option where no matter who he fights, he's going to make money. Depending on the name, it might impact how much money he makes. But unless he's fighting a GSP, everybody else is piggybacking off his money. He's not making any more money for fighting Tony than he is for fighting Khabib. Nate Diaz might make him some more. Justin Gaethje might make him some more. Max Holloway, maybe. But at the point he's at, unless you're a name-name guy, there's no benefit for him to take on any of those fights because those don't pay him any more than fighting anybody else, in my opinion. Well, and I think you mentioned it. Like, the name, he is, he is the A-side in, in the MMA world, no questions asked. Um, but like you admitted, it's not the demand isn't completely inelastic. Like a GSP demand would be greater than than say a Justin Gaethje. Um, but Justin Gaethje would be greater than you know pick pick your your other lightweight. Um, so I, I think that Connor has made no bones about it. He's the, the almighty dollar is a motivator for him. So he's measuring this out. It's probably one of the things he thinks about most often is who I'm going to fight next. And you see him planting the seeds. I mean, he's not. I think he had a tweet directed at Max Holloway after Max um, won his last fight. Correct. And he had this cryptic tweet he had at him. So it's, you know, he's, Connor's very savvy. And I think he's, he's trying to tee up his options, keep his options open, and then pick the biggest payday um, for him. And I, I, and I don't think so much it's, it's a stylistic thing. I mean, no one, no one would enjoy a fight with Khabib. Um, I, I think Connor is confident enough in his abilities, though. I don't think he would necessarily duck anyone. Uh, but if given the option of like GSP Max Holloway, I think they'd be in line before a Khabib. And with Connor, he he has the ability, thanks to the Floyd Mayweather fight and all the money he made there, to call his own shots at least. In the- what I think is most interesting about that is like the name, the the Khabib name jumps out 
at me just because of the style matchup. And I don't know if you guys saw, but um, Kyle Snyder actually reached out to yes. uh, McGregor on Twitter today offering his services to help prepare for that. So that right there was enough to get me more excited about that potential fight. But Khabib offers a style that will probably fight frighten just about anyone. So you guys are definitely right. He can go just about any way that he wants to fight with Ferguson, to fight with Holloway, to fight with... Um, Marco Madoff, I also agree with you, Phil, about taking the under. I can only see him fighting one more time this year, like maybe around that June, July, August time frame, and then riding it out for the rest of the year because we know he's going to make enough money to put himself in a position where he won't have to fight again. So uh, I kind of try to stick it to not as much Connor talking to. We actually have some some concrete facts about him. So let's move on to another story that kind of broke this week. And um, Ali Adelaziz was talking on the MMA um, hour earlier this week about the potential of a rematch between Henry Cejudo and Demetrius Johnson. And I just kind of shocked me. And I wonder if this is more of a power play because of what TJ did in turning down the late notice Cody Garbrandt fight that he was um, almost talked into taking because there's been rumors that now the UFC is trying to pull away the idea of, of him facing Mighty Mouse uh, for a super fight. So, Phil, let's talk about this first. Does this fight even interest you at all, seeing what uh, Henry has done since the first time him and Mighty Mouse faced off? Yeah, I mean, you know, Henry Cejudo's – I know he lost to Joey Benavidez. That was, that was a very close fight. Um, I think he was deducted a point in that fight. But other than that, and other than his loss to DJ, I mean, his his flyweight resume is fantastic. Um, but Demetrius Johnson is so head and shoulders above everyone else that, you know, Demetrius Johnson is the reason you want to see Demetrius Johnson fight. You want to see, okay, what kind of, you know, crazy suplex into arm bar is he going to swing out now? Um, but I and that's, I think that's what all hardcore fans have, have learned to appreciate with DJ is he's still, you know, no matter how far ahead he is in the fight, he's going for a finish. He's, he's so technically sound as, as a grappler. He's so fast. Uh, he brings so much to the table. But that's that's why it excites me is it's Demetrius Johnson. Not necessarily all due respect that it, that it is Henry, Henry Cejudo because of Demetrius Johnson's opponents, Cejudo was one of the lesser, in terms of competitiveness, was, was kind of lesser on that scale. Um, so if we're, if we're lining up opponents for DJ, yes, Henry Cejudo doesn't jump to the top of the list at me, but that's partially because Demetrius has kind of cleaned out the flyweight division. Um, I, I think Cejudo will ultimately get another shot at DJ only because, you know, he beat some of the guys who would be ahead of him on that wall. He beat Wilson Hayes. I know he beat Wilson Hayes, um, you know, but if he starts to get maybe one or two more wins, I think he would be in line for that next uh, title shot. But, you know, if I'm ranking the guys I want to see DJ – fight first it would be you know a 135 champion because that was the last time we saw demetrius johnson lose was outside of this weight class um you know uh but if should should there be a situation where cejudo goes out and just mows through someone and and really shows okay maybe he's evolved a little bit you know he's he's he was a guy who came in as, as a decorated um decorated grappler but you know he still has a lot of tread left on the tires i think he and dj are about the same age um I wouldn't hate to see that down the road, but I wouldn't necessarily, you know, be be too too excited about seeing that one next. And uh, let's throw it to you, Sean, about this topic here. Does this fight really kind of jump off the page to you? And do you think this is the UFC? I'm using air quotes of them punishing DJ or TJ, excuse me, for not taking a short notice fight against um, Garbrandt. Well, first thing when he fought Wilson Hayes, like after he trained with the Pitbull brothers, 
that would have been the time the fight would have really been exciting because of the way he dominated Hayes on the feet. Like, people had seen Cejudo be kind of more workmanlike. They saw flashes of athleticism and explosiveness. They never saw him put it all together, like controlling the range in and out and, devast and, and beat a, a world-class guy in devastating fashion. So after the Wilson Hayes fight, people were like, oh, they should be a rematch with DJ because he looks so dynamic and so explosive and so devastating, devastatingly effective. Against Sergio Pettis, you saw somewhat of the old Cejudo where he was struggling on the feet defensively. He was getting takedowns, but he wasn't able to do a whole lot with it after the fact. And that, that Cejudo, that's not the kind of guy, that's not the kind of fight or the kind of performance that invokes excitement among the mixed martial arts fans because what you want to see is he's shown enough development and growth that you can imagine him pushing DJ or possibly beating DJ. The fight after, when he fought Wilson Hayes, people thought that. When he fought Sergio Pettis, people were like, well, maybe he needs another fight or two to really work out all the kinks. So I don't think it's going to be as exciting because, as Phil mentioned, he got he just got handled by DJ. He got dismantled, he got taken apart, he got outclassed, and he hasn't put it together enough devastating performances that says, that's put a thought in people's mind that he could actually win that fight. On the second question, I, the UFC is the king of pettiness. And they've routinely done this. Fighters who haven't taken fights they wanted have been frozen out, have been put to the back burner, have been given certain tough, difficult, tough matchups because they didn't play ball with the UFC. And while that's really petty and it's not really professional, it's how they've done business for almost the whole time they've existed. So, I mean, when you tell the UFC no, you have to be prepared for some kind of verbal assault from Dana or somebody, or you have to be prepared to get the matchup that you don't want to get because they want what they want when they want it, and if you don't give it to them, then you, you have problems moving forward. That's been my experience as long as time I've been covering and just observing MMA as a fan. It's just a pattern, and I, I think TJ might get punished for this. Um, or ultimately, really, DJ would be the one who gets punished for it because uh, TJ's, TJ's is in a spot that I think there's other options for him to make money. He can make money facing Cody Garbrandt. They could pull out Uriah Faber, and he can make money. DJ does not have a lot of legitimate, legitimate, interesting matchups that will make him the money and get him the attention that he wants. What was interesting is that you said that this that they're um, known for doing this such a thing. There was a quote that came out by Dana earlier this week about what happens if you turn down a fight or what if you used to if when Lorenzo Fertitta was um, around and Sean Shelby was still making fights about what would happen if you turn down a fight in a way people would be punished for doing so that that they wouldn't like the consequences of turning down a fight so it does interest me that this is a fight that comes up if they already were having negotiations about johnson versus uh dillashaw there's so many there's so much opportunity there with getting those two together while they are at this point that if let's say they did make this fight with um henry uh so you know and somehow he he wins Everything that every all the opportunity that they had to make both Mighty Mouse and TJ into bigger stars is basically gone at that point in time. There's no, there's that type of cachet that's already kind of wiped out. So it is a situation that I hope I hope we get the fight with TJ first. I was originally uh, against it, but now that he's gotten himself into a title position and they are more prone to make these super fights, I wouldn't mind seeing it sooner rather than later. 
So the last news piece I wanted to talk about was another, um, I guess, a rematch. This would be a trilogy bout. But this one's a little different here. We're talking about Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell. This uh, story has been going around for a couple of days now where Ortiz and Liddell are going back and forth about the potential of a third fight. I'm not sure if I'm seeing it supposed to happen in Bellator or in UFC, whatever that may be. Um, but what are, uh, Phil, when you first saw this, I mean, the last time they fought was what, uh, 2008. Does this fight even get you, get? does it get your blood going now? Or is it something that you would sit down and watch? Or, or, or do you kind of laugh at this story going? I mean, I think the answer to all those questions is yes. <laughs> like, I would watch it, but it makes me roll my eyes a little bit because Chuck, Chuck Liddell is almost 50 years old. Um, and he, he, toward the end of his career, his chin, his chin went. Um, I... I don't know what state, well, uh, I, I, California wouldn't license this. Texas might, so it's, I, I guess I wouldn't throw it out as a realm of possibility of happening. Um, I, I don't think they would make this fight in the UFC. I know Chuck is, is still a little salty about uh, you know the, the terms of his separation um, from the UFC. It's something certainly Bellator would do. I mean, they, they did Shamrock Gracie uh, you know, not too long ago, but... I would, I would regrettably watch it. I, I don't think it would be high-level mixed martial arts. I think it would be commensurate to like something you would see you know, from guys who are very, very early in their pro career and don't have a ceiling. And that's no disrespect to Chuck, Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz you know, at, at, for a very long time, two of the baddest 205ers on the planet, um, when that division was a buzzsaw. Correct. That was, that was over 10 years ago. I mean, that was, that was a long and well more than 10 years ago. And like you said, it, I, I have a hard time even calling this a trilogy fight because the last time they fought was UFC 66. Um, so it's, it's, it's so, so long ago. It would be, I mean, it's like, would you watch Michael Jordan go one-on-one -on -one with Dominique Wilkins? Sure, but I wouldn't expect high-level basketball. Um, and, and with fighting, it's, there is an element of you know, actual tangible danger for these guys. So if, if it were to happen, I'd want it to be with uh, – I'd want it to be a commission that has the fortitude to say no. And, but if they're, if they're physically able to fight and do so and, and you know, I mean, I hate, I hate to say it, but if, if one of them needs the money, then, then sure. And I, I, would, I would tune in. And for you, Schwan, imagine if they did bring this show – or excuse me, this fight over to – Bellator, how big of a moment would that be for them? If you were in charge there and you were running the show, knowing what type of numbers you're trying to do and what type of numbers you historically do, like their last show with uh, Mitrione and uh, Roy Nelson did, I think it was it averaged about 430,000 viewers. of th uh, A fight between Ortiz and Liddell, would you put that on TV for everyone to see? I mean, if you're talking about the bottom line, how can you not? I mean, think about how the numbers that... Uh... Tito Ortiz versus Stefan Bonner did, or Tito Ortiz versus Chael Sonnen did. I mean, those, 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 some of the highest ratings they've had of all time between guys who at that time hadn't fought in years and hadn't won in years. The fact it's just it's name recognition. That's the main thing, and that's what Bellator specializes in. That's when they had Kimbo, Dada Five Thousand. You have a guy who may not have the skill set anymore that matches matches the weight his name carries as far as putting butts in seats and getting ratings or pay-per-view buys. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to the fight because I'd rather see two guys who are past their prime who aren't, who aren't really world-class athletes anymore competing against one another because it's at least somewhat competitive, you know, just like Shamrock versus Kimbo and 
even Gracie versus Shamrock to a degree, those guys are within the same physical skill set, same amount of damage done, same amount of time in the sport. So whereas a younger guy would just walk through either one of them, these guys have been de- have declined on each side enough where it might be it might be somewhat interesting. It won't be high, like you said, it won't be high level, won't be super technical, but it at least should be competitive on some level. And it would draw interest because Tito Ortiz is still a name. Chuck Liddell is still a name. And Tito Ortiz is on, what, a three-fight win streak right now? Or is it a four-fight win streak? I think it's three. Yeah, if nothing else, he's he's won like three or four out of his last five. He beat uh, Schlemenko. He beat Chael Sonnen. He beat um, Stefan Bonner. And he was performing well against Liam McGeary before he got tapped out. So in his last four fights, he's won three of them. You yeah, know, and some people some people thought he beat Forrest before he left the UFC. So you could say he's four out of his last five. So he's actually on a streak and he's been performing well. So you might be able to package that around around it, like, oh, can Tito do it this time? He's on a three fight winning streak. He's beat th- this name and that name, and Chael performing well in the heavyweight Grand Prix and beating Vanderlei just makes Tito's win over him look that much better. So you could sell this fight because at least he's on a winning streak and he's been competing against competent opposition. The hard part is. How do you justify bringing Liddell in it? Because Liddell was knocked out the last three times he was in the cage. But once again, that was 10 years ago. You know, yeah. maybe you can sell it that he's learned some new tricks or the black, the bad blood is still there. I'm hoping this, I'm really hoping this isn't for money, a money grab. It's really sad to me that in, in the beginning, mixed martial arts was a sport that people wouldn't get ripped off and they w- wouldn't be sent out for a brain damage just for money because they had more honor than, than in boxing. And now you see it as it's become more of a legitimate sport. They're doing the same thing boxing does. Trotting out old names, guys fighting for money, guys who should be millionaires, if not tens of millionaires, fighting for a paycheck because they don't have another way to make the income they made as a fighter. It's kind of sad in that instance that it's gone full circle like that. And from a number standpoint, you said something pretty interesting about the ratings from Bonner, uh, Ortiz Bonner and Ortiz Son. And both of these events averaged 1.85 million viewers. I mean, that's double what their heavyweight um, Grand Prix fight event from last last week averaged. So, I mean, yeah, he definitely still draws in money. He draws in ratings. And I would be willing to bet that this show would do numbers that are very similar to um, that. But as we talk about promoting this fight with like standard def video, it's just like, it's just like drawing so far back, you know, the the angle is like bad blood stewing for 15 years. It's like, yeah, because that was the first time they fought. Seriously, like he's 48 years. um, Liddell is 48 years old. 48, my goodness. Like I I couldn't imagine. Look look what they did with Ken and Hoist though. When's the last time Ken and Hoist fought and they built that up? Or even Ken and Kimo didn't even have it, didn't even, Ken and um, Kimbo didn't even fight and they made it. They made a interesting fight out of guys, two guys who almost fought ten years ago. And we all know that uh, no matter who else would be on the card, this would be the main event. And that would, I would be so pissed if I was like a Michael Chandler fighting for the title again, or if I was Rory McDonald defending my belt against like a Paul Daly or somebody, whoever it may be, and knowing that these two individuals automatically get top billing over me and my um, title defense. It's name recognition. I mean, no offense. If you're the new hot young starlet and you're in a movie with Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep is getting top billing over you. I don't care how many hit movies you had. She's still Meryl Streep. Take the second place. It just happened like that. Uh, we can argue that. We can argue that all day, but that's on a different show, though, there, man. Um, so let's keep rolling. Let's keep rolling because I definitely want to talk about UFC on Fox 28. I want to get uh, some of Phil's insights on this card. And we have a pretty interesting event this weekend. Um, the last couple of shows haven't featured a lot of 
big, big, big names or, or big title fights, but they've been some intriguing cards from top to bottom. And there's some pretty interesting fights on this weekend's um, fight card that I definitely want to talk about. And I want to start with the main event where we got uh, Josh Emmett and Jeremy Stevens. I mean, Emmett stepped in last minute. He came in overweight, which is a, which is a conversation to have. And he was able to knock out Ricardo Lamas a couple of uh months back and Jeremy Stevens he's also coming off of a big knockout when he finished off Doho Choi so looking at this fight here are we going to see someone in Emmett break through or is Stevens going to continue being that gatekeeper type of of featherweight so what are your thoughts about this fight Phil and what do you expect to see on Saturday yeah I mean it's a it's crazy to think that Josh Emmett is actually older than Jeremy Stevens (laughs) and it doesn't feel that way (laughs) because Stevens has been around for so long and you know, Emmett, um, he only has a couple, well, I, I think he started as a, as a featherweight and he just recently dropped back down. Um, I'll be quick. I, I like, I like Stevens in this fight. I think he's just, he's more tested against guys of, you know, your top five, top 10 ilk. And yeah, he's, he's lost to as many as he's, as he's beat. I know he's got losses to Frankie Edgar and Max Holloway. Um, but he's also got a win over, over Gil Melendez and Duho Choi. So like, I, I think just given the track record, I'm going to take Stevens. And again, he's, he does have a little more tread on the tires because he's been around for so, so long. But I think it's still to the point where experience is going to win out for him um, in a main event on a, on a card like this where your name's got pop billing. And that's not to discredit Emmett. I like his credentials. Um, I, I, although he did come in overweight, I did, you know, you have to like when you, when you knock out a guy like a Ricardo Lamas. Um, but I, I do think, you know, he, he knows that you can't miss weight back-to-back times because then you'll get pushed back up. But if he wants to stay at featherweight, he's going to have to make this weight cut. So if, if we're saying, like, okay, if he's, if he's 100% with a comfortable weight cut and he comes in at, like, 85%, 90%, if he has a difficult weight cut, that's not where you want to be against someone as experienced as Jeremy Stevens. So that kind of makes me think of a question there because there was a piece on MMA fighting earlier today about if missing weight is really becoming an additional advantage that fighters are having over their opponents. I mean, we saw Joel uh, Romero miss weight and he defeated Luke Rocco. Will Brooks, who was just recently cut from the UFC, one of his worst losses was when he fought Alex Oliveira, who came in almost five pounds over that day there. So, Schwann, what are your thoughts about that? Um, are we seeing a trend where fighters who are missing weight are getting an extra advantage in, in the cage, or is that just kind of just what was going on within those fights? Well, first first of all, they're, they're, they're clearly being rewarded because Romero's going to get a title shot out of it, and Emmett's one, stop, one, one step from a title shot, so it sends a mixed me- message that you're supposed to make weight, and then you miss it, and you're rewarded with either a title eliminator or you're put, put into a title shot afterward. That seems kind of confusing if you're trying to get pe- people to stop missing weight. Um, as far as the fight, the advantage, there's an advantage to it because if you're, if everybody, if we're fighting and you make weight and you actually make it, you're struggling, you know, the last two or three pounds, that's the toughest, that's the, tough, that's the part that drains you. That's the part that really tests your body. If I come at five pounds overweight, um, I'm a little bit fresher than you. You know, I'm a little bit fresher. I'm a little bit heavier. My body hasn't been as drained. I'm not as exhausted. I'll recover. I'll probably gain more weight after the uh, weigh-in. And most of all, some guys actually plan on not. Ma- if you're a big name fighter, sometimes in boxing, you'll just not make weight anyways to give you certain advantages in, in clinches. Um, when you're a little bit heavier, you take a shot a little bit better because you're not dehydrated. Not to mention the actual physical aspect of you taking the shot better because there's more mass on you. A lot of guys actually 
purposely do that. And I, I honestly think Cowboy Oliveira did that on purpose when he fought Will Brooks. I think he knew he'd have an advantage as far as the energy, the size, the physical strength. And I don't think Will Brooks was expecting the fight to be as physical and as damaging as it was. And that's what caught him off guard. And that's what ultimately cost him his fight. Um, with Rockhold, I don't think it would have made a difference. And against Ricardo Lamas, I don't think it would have made a difference either because Emmett trains with two other guys who knocked him out. They just have his number. There's a very specific way you beat him, and he already knew it, and he just had the athleticism to take advantage of it. Rockhold, we've talked about him many times. He's just got certain technical flaws that that are just going to be exposed regardless. I mean, he came and he was bigger than Romero. So, I mean, he, he just, it's just a lack of skill on those two. But in the case of... Um, Brooks, I really think that the weight, the missing weight was made on purpose and it took full advantage of certain aspects of his game that it depended on him being bigger and physically stronger than his opponent. So looking to this Saturday's fight here, man, what do you see breaking down between uh, Stevens and Emmett? I'd have to agree. Stevens is the more experienced guy and experience counts for a lot. Stevens usually gets beat by guys who have a layered craft, layered skill set, footwork, head movement, feints. They have layered striking offense, counters, leads, punches, knees, kicks. Um, I haven't seen that much from Emmett. Emmett's a, from what I've seen of him, he's kind of a typical team alpha male fighter. Super athletic, um, super tough, uh, great offensive potential, but not not a lot of variation in his game. He throws everything the same speed. He he throws every he he throws very repetitive combinations. They're not very creative. They're not very organic, and. Um, as good of a wrestler as he is, he doesn't really mix in his wrestling or grappling overall with his fight. He's either wrestling to get out of trouble or he's striking for the most part. So there's not a lot of confusion to his game. There's not a lot of strategy to his game. It's pretty obvious. So the question is, does Jeremy Stevens have the all-round skill and the, and the physical durability to neutralize the athletic advantage that Emmett has? And if he does, he should outclass him because he's got the wider range of tools. He uses his wrestling better than than Emmett uses his. He's the better striker, and for once, he's probably the better defensive striker. And that's saying something, because Jeremy Stevens is not a great defensive fighter at all. So I, I probably have to favor Stevens too. He's got, unless he's grow, he goes old overnight. His chin should hold up. He, he's beaten a better caliber of fighter. He's fought a better caliber of fighter, and he's got a better better skill set. It'd be it'd be hard for me to pick Emmett over him based off who his camp is and what I've seen of Emmett. I'm not saying he can't, because he's he's. He hits that hard. He's that much of an athlete, but he's fairly predictable. So if he doesn't get Stevens early, I don't know that he gets him at all. So, Phil, let me ask you a question, man. Stevens has been in the UFC since uh, September of 2007. So he's been around for just about 11 years. And he has, I mean, he has a hell of a, he has a, a pretty strong record. I mean, he has wins over Henan Burrell, Dennis Bermudez, Gilbert um, Melendez we've seen recently, but he continues to falter in like the big fights that gets him over the hump. Do we ever see a time where Jeremy Stevens is challenging for a UFC title? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, in that sense, um, you know, file him as I did Michael Bisping for so long, where it was just like, man, this guy just seems like he's one win away. And uh, Bisping, God bless the guy, UFC 199, it happened. It broke through. He had his opportunity and knocked out the guy you were just talking about, or you guys were just talking about, Luke Rockhold. Um, I just, I don't know. It, it, he's at a very, he's in a very unfortunate weight class. To, if he, if he wants that to be his story, because there's this young Hawaiian kid who's just torching everyone, and uh, who beat Stevens pretty handily at UFC 194. Um, of course, I'm talking about Max Holloway. So, I don't know if you know if, I mean, Stevens has been at 145 for shoot, about five years now. 
Um, and he's like you said, he's he has some decent wins, but he really doesn't have that like stakeholder win. I mean, Hen and Brow jumping up a class, sure. Gilbert Melendez going down, but as far as like a true natural featherweight, his big, biggest win was probably against you know his last fight, a really tough kid, Duho Choi, um, and 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 he knocked him out. Great. Um, you know, Stevens Stevens does have a really good chin, I and mean, for as as long as he's been around, his chin hasn't really faded. Um, but if he's going to make a run for the title, I don't want to say the time is now. Um, but again, when you have 40 fights on your resume, you're not going to be someone who's, you know, you're not going to peak late. You're not going to peak, you know, in, in your mid-30s or late-30s like a Daniel Cormier or Yoel Romero. His, his peak is probably about this time. So if he is going to make a run, it's going to, I think he's going to have to beat someone like a Josh Emmett. And then get on the mic, you know, let people know, you know, the, who the belief is this and, and start to make a run at, at a rematch for Max Holloway to get into that mix with the elite at 145. Um, because if he, if he takes a loss in this fight, then, you know, Emmett goes over him in a pecking order functionally. Um, and then it's, it's going to be kind of a long road. And we're talking two, three years down the line with a string of wins it would take for him to get in a position where he could be challenging for a title shot again. Um, so I, I don't want to write him off, but right now he is kind of like that second tier. I know the term, everyone hates it, but kind of like gatekeeper status um, until he can beat a guy like Emmett and then probably get one or two more wins to really have his resume demand a title shot, which right now I don't think it does. Like just I, I just wanted to add in real quick, that, that point he made, Phil made, he, like, like I said earlier, when you've been in the game this long, it's like the Robbie Lawler thing. You can be, be on an upward climb, but you can be old overnight. You could be dominant three, four fights in a row, and the next fight, the lightest left hook, the lightest jab puts you on your butt. It's only a matter of time, like, especially with the amount of fights and, and the kind of fights he's been involved in, you wonder when his shin's going to give out, because so much of how he fights is dependent on him to be able to take and recover from massive shots because his defense hasn't been very good. And secondly, beating Emmett would be impressive because of the athlete Emmett is and the threat he poses, but he's never had a problem beating guys like Emmett. The problem is, beating guys who have multiple ways to win a fight. Cub Swanson can outbox you, he can brawl with you, he can submit you. Frankie Edgar can outwork you, he can wrestle you to a decision, he can submit you. When guys have multiple dimensions, same thing with Max Holloway, that's where he's lost. Against guys who are just dynamic grapplers or dynamic punchers, he's always done fine. Even guys who are wrestlers, he's been able to stymie them to a bit. But guys who are like true mixed martial artists, i.e. the elite guys in division, He's always lost, even 55, he always lost to those guys. And at 45, he's still losing to those guys. He's gotten better at his game. He's added a couple of tricks here and there, but he hasn't really diversified. He's still not a grappling threat. He's still not a lights out wrestler. And for all his skills striking, he still isn't considered one of the better technical strikers offensively or defensively. You know, you know where I'm coming from? So it's like him beating Emmett would be predictable to me. I still don't see how he beats the other guys, the, the guys who've got the better skill sets in the higher level of experience. That's that's where my concern comes from. And he's already lost to everybody who's elite in the division. So even if he, he loses this fight, he's way at the back of the line, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm definitely agreeing with you both there. I, I, it's interesting. When I look down uh, Jeremy Stevens' record right now, the most valuable win he may have on, on his record from like, the last couple of bouts was against Darren Elkins when he defeated him. And we look at the run that Darren Elkins is on right now. That may be his most valuable win uh, over the last few years. I mean, it, everyone else you look at has kind of been on a skid in their own right. He hasn't beaten anyone 
I'm looking at the list right now. Anyone that jumps off the page other than Elkins when he defeated him back at UFC on Fox 10. I think his uh, biggest win in his career would have been RDA, but that was before RDA became RDA. Yeah, yeah. true. true. We, all, we, we often forget about that nasty uppercut. Um, let's, look, let's talk about this co-main event, because this one is really jumping off the page of something that I want to see and I'm looking forward to. We have Jessica Andrade and Tisha Torres. This is, I feel like this is uh, Tisha's opportunity to kind of put her name on a very short list for um, strawweight title shots. But they gave her a hell of a test in order to, to um, get their feel. Talk about this fight here. What do you see when you look at um, Andrade and Torres? And is this a fight that Torres can win knowing the way on, on Andrade comes out so aggressive? Yeah, I mean, it, it, Torres is, is the person who I always pick against and always finds a way to make me look stupid. Um, you know, her only loss is to the champion. Um, and, and that's because her wins haven't been terribly sexy. I mean, it's a, it's a string of decisions, uh, but you know, she just keeps winning fights and um, just keeps climbing her way up the rankings. I, I was really bummed out when Carolina had to pull out of this fight because I would have really liked to see that, uh, her fight on Draj. Um, but talking about this fight... You know, like you said, Andrade is is aggressive. She's going to come out fast. Um, she has the ability to do some damage with her hand. She has the ability to tap you out. And we know what Tisha's going to do. Tisha's going to try and, and wrestle. Um, and that's where I, I think she might get herself into trouble against someone like Jessica Andrade, who in her own right has, uh, since she's gone back down to straw weight, has been has been very impressive. You know, her own her only blemish is to Joanna, which you can just dismiss as like, yeah, everyone not named Rose has lost to Joanna. Um, I I think if Tisha can weather the storm, tornado pun not intended, um, she might have a chance um, in the later rounds to, you know, if, if it's a close fight, you know, maybe one of these things where you can see like a swing in the second round and if, if Andrade gasses at all, I think that's that's Torres's really only route to win. Whereas I could see Andrade win this fight. If you told me she's going to win by, you know, rear naked choke, or she's going to catch, you know, Torres with um, like a, a heavy hand and, and drop her and kind of you know ground and powder up to like a TKO, like none of those things would surprise me. Um, or if she just was so efficient with her, you know, submission grappling that she just won the fight on the ground against someone who's a fine wrestler, but that's kind of her, her predominant um, tool in her tool belt. So I, I like Andrade in this fight, and I don't I don't know how, but that's kind of why I like her because she is so versatile. Um, I think whereas whereas you know once if you can shut down the wrestling, uh, she's going to be in trouble. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely seeing why everyone's leaning towards Andrade. I think that her pressure is going to be a big issue for Torres because she's fought a lot of women who don't pressure her in the same type of way. Uh, and I think that that's going to be the um, the difference maker here. Uh, Shawan, talk about this from a technical standpoint. Do you think that Tisha has the technical uh, skills to be able to outstrike Andrade the way Joanna did? Uh, no, not at all. Part of Joanna's success was her length. Tisha Torres has short arms and she's just short altogether. She ha she can't she can navigate distance pretty well, like she can get in and out. But the fact is for her to establish a jab, for her to land her right hand, for her to land her kit even her kicks, she has to get into almost the pocket range to be effective. Once you're in the pocket range against Andrade, you're basically in her world, and not because Andrade is a great boxer, because she's not. Technically speaking, I like—I'm not impressed by Andrade at all. Technically speaking, like she's she's just 
to me she hasn't gotten a lot better but the fact of the matter is she can she can fight at a high pace for five rounds because when she fought joanna joanna was getting tired and george was not she was joanna was beating the crap out of her but Andrade was not tired. She wasn't even breathing heavy. She was eating shots, couldn't land a shot, but she kept on pressing. She kept on throwing. Her her volume didn't really fall. Her pressure didn't really fall. Her explosion didn't really fall. She maintained it for five rounds, and that's doing nothing but taking pinpoint, crisp leads and counters to the head and to the body from Joanna. Physically, she's just way stronger than Tisha Torres. Tisha's, a lot of her success on the feet is her athleticism, her ability to get into the, jump into range, get her hands on you, take you down and control you. She's not gonna control Andrade. She had a hard time controlling Michelle Watterson. In fact, Michelle Watterson took her down and Michelle Watterson's A, not a great grappler, and B, isn't close to being one of the more, more physical or sh physically strong fighters in the division. This is like a really bad matchup because Teacher's biggest advantage is she moves around a lot, she throws a lot of volume, she essentially opens you up with the hands and the feet and then takes you down repeatedly and either works you over and controls you. But she's facing someone she's not going to be able to scare off with her power because she hasn't hit very hard. Tisha gets tired because of the amount of volume she has to put out to get any effect because she doesn't hit hard. She's just got to throw almost twice if not three times the volume to get the effect. She's not going to be able to scare Andrade off. She's not going to be able to take her down and control her. She's not going to be able to hurt her. And Tisha Torres isn't really great in submissions off of scrambles or when she's placed on her back. She's not good at either one of those spots. And if you're fighting Jessica Andrade, you're almost guaranteed to be on your back or in a scramble. And she's not going to win that either. And defensively, she's not good enough. Part of that's because she's not good defensively. Her positioning, her timing isn't really great. But part of it's because she's short with short arms and she's forced to get in, into her opponent's wheelhouse to be effective. Her biggest thing is she can get in and out, in and out. That's not going to work against Andrade because she's not going to be able to do enough damage to make Andrade hesitate. And if you can't scare Andrade off, she's gonna just run you over. Claudia Gadelia actually was able to do a little bit of damage and you saw what happened the first time Jessica got her hands on her. So if this is a really bad stylistic matchup, this is a bad technical matchup, the only way she wins this fight is if something horribly is wrong with Andrade right now or Andrade just basically goes to hell overnight. Because based on a technical level, if I was, even if I was coaching her, I wouldn't have any legitimate answers for her to win the fight. Make it more competitive? Yes. Actually win? Unless something goes terribly wrong for Andrade, I don't see how she wins. If she makes it competitive, I will be greatly impressed. But I don't see how she does that at all. Looking at this fight here, let's say Torres does, because um, we've all kind of picked on Andrade already. Let's say Torres does get the win here and Rose comes out and defeats Joanna again. Do we make that, that, that trilogy fight between the two, Phil? Because they've already gotten one win each over each other. Would that be the next fight to make? I mean, I, 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 the trilogy is always going to be there. It's kind of like the Connor and, and Nate Diaz trilogy. like The less popular version. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. Like, there's, there's, no, there's no rush to make it. My point is, like, the, the demand for Connor Nate, whether you do that fight, say you do that fight, this year, or you do that fight next year, you do that fight in 2020, it's going to have the same demand. So, like, for me, I don't think there's any rush for the UFC to say, all right, we got to do Nami Yunus Torres 3. Um, it's especially, like, if Torres somehow just, you know, wins, like, a split decision or something. Um, there's not going to be, like, that, oh, my gosh. Because, what like, what's that promo going to look like? Yeah, you have her tapping Juliana Lima, but then, like, her just kind of, you know, grappling an atom weight in Michelle Waterson. Um, and again, that's all due respect to Waterson, but like, 
Torres, you know, it, unless she does something that really j pops off the page, she's just going to be one of these fighters with a great record, but really there's no reason to fear her. Um, that said, I mean, you can pick your, you know, top five, um, you know, straw weights and see if you want to run that back. I mean, maybe you run back Torres Van Zandt because <laughs> Torres fought a very, very young page and beat her in a decision, you know, back in the Invicta days. Um, so th there are options for Torres um, for rematches. The Rose one, I think, will always be there. And at, at some point, if she if she runs up enough wins, you know, yeah, she's gonna she's going to run into the champion eventually. But man, we're talking. You know, I I would be pretty surprised if she beat Andrade this weekend. Um, and and even still, I, I don't I don't see the avenue where she could do it so impressively that a title shot would be next. If she beats Andrade, I'd have her fight the winner of Carolina versus Felice Herrig, because Herrig kind of have a, has a fan base and she's on a win streak. That'd be like her fourth or fifth fight in a row as a win. And Carolina actually has a win over um, a recent win over Nami Yunus in a more, in, in my opinion, a more convincing win mm -hmm. and a more impressive win than the one that um, Tisha Torres had over. So whoever the winner of that fight, if if Torres somehow won that, she would to me she would have to face the winner of. Uh, Kovacavich v. Herrig, and then whoever wins that will be the next challenger for um, for um, Rose Namajunas. Yeah, and it's kind of a convenient reset too, because Carolina was supposed to was supposed to fight Andrade on this card that we're talking about. So, okay, Torres, if Torres gets the win somehow, and Carolina, you know, wins her upcoming fight, then you know, against Herrig, uh, is that UFC two twenty three? I think that's at UFC. Uh, yeah, two twenty three. I believe that's that. Uh, Yes, I mean, the timing works for that, too. Like, you can put that, if they're healthy, put it International Fight Week, you know, any of the card there, or, you know, whenever you'd want to do it. I do like that thought process. Um, and then you, the, the timing just kind of lines up for everything, which is, I think, where the UFC's gotten lost in some of the promotion is, you know, when the timing gets out of sync, it, it's tough to make fights. You, you have fewer options for good fights to make. Very true. They're very true. So, Phil, I want to um, get get two more questions before we uh, let you head out because it'd be cautious of your time there, man. What else are you looking forward to on UFC on Fox 28? Is there anything else that kind of jumps off the page that you really want to see? Yeah, something I slept on for a while. It wasn't until, man, basically until right after last last week's card when I started looking forward. I was like, oh, my gosh, Hennon Burrell's on this card. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm still kind of in my in my nostalgic days of Henan Barrow is a top three pound for pound guy. Um, I know he hasn't been the same in the last few years since TJ dismantled him the first time. Um, but anytime Henan Barrow's on the card, I get excited for it. Um, you know, this card is sneaky. Um, you know, as today, as I was looking through it, it's like, you know, there are more fights that interest me on this card just in terms of as just pure entertainment value than there were on UFC 221 and there are on UFC 222. Um, mm -hmm. So it is, it is a deep card. It's not going to be one that resonates and you're going to be seeing on, you know, major sports networks or it's it's probably not going to do gangbuster numbers. But for people who do love mixed martial arts, it's one that you, you can't afford to miss because I could pick, man, any one of four fights here that if you told me, hey, this was fight of the night, it wouldn't blow me away. Um, OSP, Latifi, is one that, you know, is, is pretty good because the light heavyweight division has really thinned out. Um, so the winner of that fight, it's almost like is guaranteed to have like, this is going to be the guy's biggest win in, in recent, in recent memory. Um, so then that you can immediately build on that. Um, the loser of this fight's going to, you know, fall way, way back in the pack. 
um, especially if it's if it's some kind of you know if it's one sided at all. Uh, so that's going to intrigue me only because you know whatever the next fight is for him, it's kind of like okay, now we have one more guy in that group of that that second tier of light heavyweights behind the John Jones and Daniel Cormier's of the world. You know that 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 group after them where there's like a big drop between those. Uh, this guy, these guys would join that. So um, I think they're they're going to be some. The intriguing thing about this is there are going to be some good storylines coming out of it. It's it's kind of a good setup card, which is unfortunate for the UFC that it's on Fox. You'd want like the payoff card to be on Fox when the storylines come together. Uh, whereas this one, I think you know we'll, we'll see some storylines coming out of it, ones we've already touched on, and, and other ones deeper down the show. Definitely, man. I totally agree with you there. So, um, wanted to get you uh, to let us know where can we find all your work, man? Where can we catch you on TV? Where can we find you on Twitter and all that? Let us know. <laughs> all right. So, the TV part's going to be tough if you're listening in the U.S. Um, because I, I, I anchor Sports Center specifically for ESPN International. Um, so, I, my shows are in Africa, they're in Australia, wow. they're in the Philippines, um, they're all over the place. But it's cool to do that. I love doing it. You know, when I was at the NBA All-Star Game, when I was at the Super Bowl, I'm handed microphones with different logos on it for ESPN networks and talking to people all over the world. So it's a pretty sweet deal. Um, and so I'm, I'm really fortunate to be in that role. Um, but that's where you catch me on TV is you ever travel and you turn on ESPN any of these places. If it's, if it's, in, if it's an English language ESPN internationally, there's a very, very good chance I'll be on it. Um, Online, I'm at Phil underscore sports on Twitter. Uh, it's also my Instagram, although I'm, I'm, I'm still learning Instagram, still getting active there, but I'm, I'm very active on Twitter, uh, especially fight nights. It's funny. Uh, I'll gain followers throughout the week for my you know work on SportsCenter, and then if someone's not into MMA, I just lose them on the weekend. <laughs> yep. They just, they just jump ship. So I'm sorry. You see that a lot in college football season two. Um, but yeah, my, my, I do have a lot of stuff on ESPN.com, even stuff that would air internationally. Uh, if, if we have digital rights for it in the U.S., which is a good amount of our content, it'll clip off. And so you'll see me floating around ESPN.com. So I've had people who have seen my stuff but had no idea I was not on TV in the U.S. because I'm in a sports center studio. It's just it's clipped off and put on uh, clipped off from the show and put on ESPN.com. So yeah, and then, then uh, ESPN MMA page, ESPN.com/MMA. Uh, I contribute there semi-regularly. We have a weekly panel. And then, you know, during light times of the year, I might do a feature story with a fighter or something. And uh, I'm actually just getting involved now with the ESPN eSports community. We're launching a show there. Um, if you're into eSports like Overwatch League or League of Legends, I'll be doing some work with them as well. Awesome, man. That's definitely good to hear, dude. As in, as always, man, it's great to see you still there, still doing your thing. You've definitely, like, you know, you've blossomed, man. You've, you've hit the ground running, and it's been great watching you grow. So I definitely want to say congratulations to all, all you're out there doing, and just keep up the great work, man. People are definitely watching. Thank you so, so much, man. It means a lot. No problem, man. Good Thanks nice again for your time. You, Phil. Good, good. Thank you for coming on the show. All right, guys. Pleasure talking with you. Let's do this again sometime. No problem, man. Have a good one. You too. Bye. So uh, definitely thanks to having Phil on the show today. So, um, Shawan, let's keep going from there, man. What jumps out on this UFC on Fox 28 card? I think it's a lot, a lot of stuff there that people are going to just miss out on because it's not a big, big, big event. Uh, well, you're, you're uh, the girl you're a very big fan of, Angela Hill, will be fighting. Correct. A very important, very important fight for her. Uh, that That's one of the I – th- I think that has a chance to be one of the better fights on the card. And then Sarah McMahon fighting, a girl who was – pretty much one step away from a title shot at Bantamweight 
and got knocked all the way back down when she got submitted by Ketlin Vera. She's trying to get, get back on track against uh, Marianne Renault. Those are two fights that are going to be very import, important for the divisions, for two divisions that have been notoriously thin in the recent years. So if Hill does not pull out a win here, do we see her end up back in, in Invicta? Uh, I think it's very likely. She would have only won one fight, and that would have been fighting Ashley Yoder. She's been in exciting fights, fight of the night type fights. Fight against Ansaroff was, in, was incredible, high volume, high contact, back and forth, but she lost. The fight against Andrade was same thing, high contact. I think that was a fight of the night, but she once again lost. The only person she beat was Ashley Yoder, who's a fringe contender. So if she fights another person who's actually ranked, which Moroz is, and she loses, especially if she loses decisively, it's going to be really hard to justify her being here. That means she's one in three. Now, she, will, she would have only lost to the better girls in division, but the fact that matters, she still would have lost to every single elite or close to elite girl she's faced. And that's not what the UFC was looking for when they brought her back in. Being that she's a personality she is, they might keep her around for another fight or two, but um, I, I really don't think she can afford to lose this fight. Because if, if it's not this fight that gets her in trouble, the next fight she loses is going to have her right on the edge, ready to be taken out of the division. Someone I'm really interested in seeing fight this weekend is Mike Perry as well. Um, he had a very tough fight against Ponzinibbio a few weeks back, and I think that Mike Perry is an interesting guy at um, 170. He's only 26 years old, and he was on a pretty good run um, in the UFC until he ran into Alan Drabon, but he's defeated Jake Ellenberger and Alex Reyes since. And I, I wonder where this, where this guy's ceiling is. Is he someone that we can kind of see grow into a, a contender or is he always going to hang out in this situation where he's winning two, losing two, winning two, losing two. I hope that he can find a way to get a win here on um, Saturday and I would love to see him face off against Donald Cerrone if Cerrone I, decides to stay around at 70. I think he's got the, I think he's got the physical tools. He's probably one of the better athletes. He's definitely one of the hardest hitters, physically tougher guys. The best thing about him is in, instinctually he has a feel for fighting like some guys are good at fighting because they work really hard some guys are good because they're natural athletes some guys are good because they have a very cerebral mindset he just has an instinctual feeling towards it like he's learned how to navigate range he's learned how to place his shots he's learned how to pick his shots i'm not saying somebody hasn't taught him that but everybody in mixed martial arts gets taught these things some guys figured out faster than others and he's a guy who's figured it out a lot faster than people who've been in the sport for a lot longer time. He fights, he fights like a guy who's had about four to five more fights than he's actually had. And that's all credit to his mindset and his ability to pick up the, fine, the nuances of, um, of mixed martial arts. Even when he's not doing the right thing technically, he's got the right idea for what he's doing. So he has a high upside. The question is, is the UFC going to burn him out putting him in against guys who are all action type guys because you can't fight some of the guys he's fought and I think there's not going to be a price to be paid as far as as far as either shortening his career or shortening shortening the elite aspects of his career so if he can if they can maybe get him a couple easy touches or get him some matchups that aren't so physically demanding and give him a chance to kind of recover and move up I think it's very likely he could be the next big star he's, he hasn't been fighting very long and we you see the growth he's made from the first time he was in the UFC to now it's it's, it's really impressive. It is, it is really, really impressive to see how far he's come along. And he's not at the biggest camp. And he's not facing, he's not, he's not with the best coach in the world. He's not sparring the best guys in the world. But you see the progress he's made. And that, that's one of those things that proves the point of 
some people are born fighters, some people are made fighters, and the best fighters are fighters who are born because the progress he's made should not have been made by a guy with his camp, with his lack of experience, and with his lack of, um, I guess, high-level talent around him. There's guys who work out, who spar with all-star type fighters, and they can't do half the things that Mike Perry is just doing based on him figuring it out throughout the context of fighting. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to seeing how far this guy grows, man. Let's take a look back at the action from this past weekend where um, we had two fight cars. We had Roy Nelson and Matt Mitrione getting it on at um, Bellator 194. And then we had uh, Cerrone and Medeiros headlining UFC Fight Night Austin or UFC Fight Night Austin 126, whatever they're naming it now. What did you think of that fight between Cerrone and Medeiros. I'm not surprised it ended the way it did. I'm I'm kind of surprised it ended as early as it did. I thought it was going to go a little bit longer. But what was some of your thoughts about that? Um, what what's weight main event there? Uh, about the Bellator one or the UFC? I'm sorry. UFC. Kind of went the way I thought it was. Medeiros' best chance was to catch Cowboy early. Cowboy's taking a lot of punishment, especially recently. He's never been the most durable guy, and he's a sl- he's still a slow starter. Madero's best chance was to hit to jump on him early, try to overwhelm him with volume, and just put him away quick. The problem was Madero's was coming forward. He was walking in on him, but a lot of times they were high-fiving and hugging. So he was still coming at Cerrone, but he wasn't posing a threat, if you understand what I'm saying. He wasn't threatening him. He wasn't making him work. He let Cerrone kind of find his range, get his comfort, and then Cerrone started counter-punching him and essentially just took him apart because... Cerrone, if you put pressure on him, like real pressure, and you're throwing real volume, and you're threatening him, he'll back up in a straight line. The, the holes in his game will start opening up, and you kind of kind of overwhelm him. But if you're coming forward, and you're not putting extreme pressure on him, you're not throwing a lot of volume, you're not getting your hands on him and roughing him up, he's going to start finding his spots, finding his distance, and he's going to take you apart. Even though he's not a devastating striker, he is a very experienced and very seasoned one in and out of mixed martial arts. And basically, he just found his rhythm, and... Medeiros is coming forward, not pressuring, not throwing out real volume, and he basically just walked into a counter, and that was it. Um, Medeiros didn't have the skill set to beat him on paper, but what he did have was he seemed to be the more durable fighter, he seemed to be the fresher fighter, and he seemed to be the busier fighter. And to me, he didn't take advantage of those those tools. And as a result, that's how he got beat so de- so decisively and thoroughly in the fight. Now you have Cerrone talking about moving back down to one... Um... 155. Do you buy that, or do you think that he should just kind of ride it out at uh, 170 for the time being? The problem with 170 is, once again, he's never been the, he's never had the best chin. He's never taken the best body shot. When he was at 170, he was on that win streak. He was like a fight or two away from a title fight, so it made sense to be there. But at this point, he's like three, four, five fights away from any sort of title shot, even though he's got a name. And all the guys he would be facing are durable athletic, very big hitting guy. So, you know, I mean, you want to see Cowboy against Usman? Do I want to see Cowboy against um, Santiago Ponzanibio? Do I want to see him against Mike Perry? Yeah, they're exciting fights because of the style matchup and the names involved. But as far as the a- actual well-being and physical health of Donald Cerrone, he can't be fighting guys who could probably knock out middleweights, if not light heavyweight. He's never been a guy to take that kind of shot. And even though his skills have gotten better overall, the fact of the matter is the timing's still not there, his recuperative ability's not there, his speed, explosiveness, which was never great, isn't there as much. He's getting by on experience, skill, and poise. 
that's not enough when you're facing guys who are that much fresher than you, that much better athletes, that much more durable, and hit that much harder. The best bet for him to be would go down to 55 if he can make it health in a healthy manner and take one last run at the title. I mean, he's got RDA up here now, so the thing got the belt on a different person down at um, 55, so he might have a chance if he can put a couple wins together to be in position to get a title shot. Right now, he's four or five fights away, easy. I mean, there's so many guys ahead of him right now. What would we'll, we'll be the point? And all those fights, even the ones he won, they took a toll on him. Look at how he, re he reacted to getting hit at 70. You know, look how he looked after Matt, a fight he won against Matt Brown. Look at his, look at him after the fight. He's busted up. Look at how he got stopped by Masvidal at 70. You know, look at how he got stopped by Darren Till. I mean, he's just not built. He can, offensively he can handle it, technically he can handle it, but as far as handling the clinches and the grappling and taking the punishment, he's not a, he's not a welterweight. And that, that's where the problem is going to be for him. He can't stand up to the abuse long enough to become a world-class world welterweight. Yeah, man. Um, if you send him back down to 55, who would he face, though? Because, like, he – I wouldn't want to see him against a Khabib. I wouldn't want to see him against a Conor right now or a Justin Gaethje or even a Dustin Poirier. I mean, well, that fight would interest me. But where would you put him right now if he moved back down to 155? Um, I don't – I don't – I'm trying to think. There's – He's fought so many guys at 155 who are still there. I'm, I don't really, I don't really know. I don't really have a name right now. I, I guess, I mean, you can put him against the winner of Gaethje versus Poirier. I mean, because Donald Cerrone is such a big name, anybody would be willing to fight. Anybody would be willing to face him because, I mean, he there's a certain certain amount of uh, a certain cachet he has, and then there are certain opportunities that come if you can beat a Donald Cerrone. So um, maybe somebody like that. I mean, I can't see them putting him Sage Northcutt. That would be kind of unfair to sage i think but um yeah maybe maybe Dustin, maybe joe maybe joe duffy um possibly uh james vick james vick would fight him that'd be a name guy for james vick to fight if he wants a name guy and he he wants to get an opportunity to show what he can do uh, even a benil dariush maybe could uh, get a fight against donald it'd be somebody in the maybe the top 10 to top 15 in, in lightweight i could see him going in because he'd want to start back in slow. He w wouldn't deserve to get put in with the top five or top ten guy right away. Yeah, definitely there. Um, man, there's so much going on this weekend that it's just kind of just there's so much stuff to kind of recap from last weekend. What did you think about Derek Lewis and Marcin Tabura? That heavyweight fight there was pretty interesting because Marcin was on his way to winning until Derek Lewis found a way to stop him. What did you think about that heavyweight bout? Um, it's typical Derek Lewis. I mean, his hands looked a little bit better. His management with distance, his footwork seemed a little bit better. But the fact of the matter is, he's still not a great boxer. He's still not a great defensive defensive striker. He's not a great kickboxer. He's not a great wrestler, grappler. He just basically picks his spot. He he picks his spots to explode, and when he explodes, whether it's offense or counter shots, it essentially can turn a fight around and end a fight. That's basically how he's won all his fights. When he fought Roy Nelson. He, was, he did the more damage on the feet, the more noticeable damage on the feet, and that overcame Roy's repeated takedowns. When he fought, I can't remember that Russian guy's name for the life of me, but he got taken down. He was controlled for almost four and a half rounds. The, the guy slipped up once. He landed a big shot over. Travis Brown outstriking him from distance. Travis Brown gives up the distance and gets into exchange, and slowly Lewis starts breaking him apart and eventually takes him out, and it's the same thing with Tybura. The, thing I, the reason I had concerns with Tybura is a lot of his fighting is based on him throwing volume, putting pressure on you, getting rough with you, and wearing you out. This wearing you out and extending you. 
that's fine. That could work because Lewis isn't in the best shape. He's not the best grappler. He's not the best defensive striker. The reason that doesn't work, and I mentioned this last week, is because Lewis is great off the counter. So if you're pressing him and outworking him and out hustling him, that means you're giving him multiple opportunities to land the kill shot all fight long. And Tybura kept giving him opportunities. So all it took was one mistake. And when the mistake happened, Derek Lewis was there to close the show. He's the most beatable elite fighter there is in mixed martial arts today. But because he's always willing to explode at any moment and can end a fight at any moment, he's probably one of the most dangerous fighters in mixed martial arts today. Because all his fights he's won have been losses up until the last minute when he turned him around. Yeah, it's um, pretty interesting to me what, what we saw there. I thought Derek Lewis was on his way to losing that fight until he found a way to pull it out. Um, do you make the Nganu fight that he's been calling for next? I mean, it'd be a cool fight. Um, but Nganu, I think, is taking a break. And secondly, I really think Ngannou wins. I mean, they're kind of similar, and they, they're kind of similar. But I've seen Ngannou go a hard five rounds. I haven't seen Derek Lewis go a hard five rounds. And you could say that Ngannou was getting beat up by Stevie, but the fact is, it was a fast pace, and he was taking a lot of abuse. And he didn't mentally quit, nor did he physically quit. I think he's the better striker. I think he's got the better reflexes. He's a better athlete. And as good as Lewis is at countering, Lewis gets hit a lot early, and he gets a lot. He gets hit a lot. Period. Um, Ngannou, Ngannou can land a kill shot on him, and Lewis isn't a good enough defensive fighter to get away from it. I, I think he was he would stop Lewis he would stop Lewis early. I mean, he could stop Lewis early or late, but I, I really think that he would stop Lewis early. Lewis would try counter him, and Ngannou would counter the counter, and that would be the end of that. Because Lewis doesn't have a, gra- a wrestling game, not a real one. He's not a real grappling game either. And as good as effective as he is on the feet, he is not particularly technical defensively or offensively. Good, 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 good breakdown there. Um, what else stood out for you from this card? Anything else jumped off off the page? Um, I saw the fight between Lucy Pudilova and Sarah Moraz. The reason I paid attention to that fight after that fight, I really think Holly Holmes looking for a fight to get back into in the bantamweight division. Holly Holmes is a noted striker. She's a superior athlete. She's an experienced fighter. She's gonna want somebody who's on a win streak because if she beats them, it kind of puts her back into position is being considered a legitimate bantamweight contender, and she needs somebody with a favorable style matchup. Cyborg was a striker, but that's not really a favorable style matchup. Misha Tate was not a favorable style style, style matchup. Jerain Durandami was, Shevchenko was, but you know them being different classes of strikers allowed them to beat her, but still she was more competitive in those fights than she was with Cyborg or with Misha Tate in the end result. I think the fight with Lucy Pudilova works perfectly because if Pudilova beats her, she established herself as a legit contender for the title. If Holm beats Pudilova, she beats a girl who's won five of her last six fights and is a ranked fighter. And Holm has not beaten a ranked fighter in almost, what, two years now? Oh, no, she beat Betch Kohea. So she's beaten one ranked fighter in, like, the past three years. So this would be her chance to fight another ranked fighter who's on a win streak, who is young, and has a match, a style that fits with the style she has, which is striking, and that would get her instantly back in the top ten. And in worst case scenario, top 10 with the win over that girl. So I, I was looking at that fight because I'm thinking Holmes people are looking for a fight for her. And that's the best That's the best matchup there is out there. A person who's got experience, who's got multiple wins, and has a style that fits your style. It's, yeah, definitely. Uh, almost all win and no loss. Either way it goes, the UFC wins because they'll either have a new challenger or they'll have their biggest name in division reestablish herself as a threat. 
so let's talk about this Bellator card real quick. What um we had Nelson and Roy, uh, excuse me, Matt Mitrio and Roy Nelson in the main event. What stood out from you here, and if anything else kind of caught your attention throughout the rest of the event? It stood out to me that Mitrio, because I I know King Mo, so like I kind of had an idea what Roy Nelson was gonna do. Um, Matt Mitrio is really he's really terrible as a grappler, as a defensive wrestler and a grappler. He's just awful, and it's amazing to me the guy with his kind of size and athleticism hasn't done more with his physical tools. I mean, just just based on athleticism alone, he should be a top five, uh, top a top five heavyweight in the UFC. He's that kind of, he's a legitimate world-class heavyweight athlete. And he's kind of wasted those tools by not developing the finer aspects of the game. I mean, when Roy actually pressed for the takedowns, he got him, he controlled him. And in that third round, he to me, he, he did enough to get a draw. Because that was, to me, that was the 10-8 round, just off control, even not so much off the damage. But Mitrione is terrible off his back. He's got no offensive game, no counter game. And his, his takedowns, I mean, I know Roy Nelson's a big, strong guy, but Roy Nelson is not explosive. And he got in on his hips clean multiple times. And that's not a good sign, considering the fact he's got at least one national-level wrestler in Bader, a big, strong, fast guy. And he's got King Mo, who's a smaller guy, but a world-class wrestler who's a much better athlete. If Nelson can get you down, you can't tell me that Kimo or Ryan Bader can't get him down. I mean, Travis Brown took him down and submitted him. So clearly, takedown defense and, and defensive grappling is not his his uh, skill set. I mean, I'm glad he won. I guess that works better for the Bellator because he's younger and he's got a kind of exciting style. But anybody who was thinking he was going to be the favorite has to be sorely, very, very concerned and sorely disappointed in that performance because it was not the kind of performance to build excitement in the in the Bellator heavyweight Grand Prix, nor does it build any confidence in Mitrione himself. Yeah, man, it's kind of interesting because now it's like people are people are joking about it at first, but it's like, man, are we looking at a situation where Chael Sonnen might mess around and win this tournament? And it's looking like his work ethic alone, then the way he approaches fights, seems like he has may have a good opportunity to kind of step in there and, and win. What are your thoughts about his, his chances to win the whole Grand Prix? Um, I think he has a good chance. I mean, to be quite honest, Frank Mir is out of shape. He's not been the toughest guy. We don't know what Fedor has. I mean, in theory, based on all the skills he has, Fedor should actually be able to win this tournament. I would say Fedor or Fedor or Mo would be the favorite, but Sonnen's Sonnen's a fresher fighter. He's the he's a younger fighter in most cases, and he's been actually been fighting a, a decent a decent amount of times and a decent level. And he's got the wrestling to fall back on. And all these guys, as big and strong as they are, haven't been the most difficult guys to take down. The question for Sonnen is can he handle, handle it if he's facing a guy who's a submission threat? Fortunately for him, there's only two. There's Frank Mir and there's Fedor. Outside of that, I don't know that there's anybody he can't consistently take down. He can take down Vader. I think he can take down Mitrion. Honestly, he can take down Fedor or Frank Mir. The question is can he survive on the ground with them? But, I mean, he's got a good chance of anybody. I, I'd probably say... I, I, I personally think Fedor or Mo has the inside track to this, but um, um, Sonnen's a live dog. I mean, he, he took some really good shots from Rampage, and Rampage is probably the first or second biggest hitter in the in the tournament right now. So I, I can't say that Sonnen does not have at least a legitimate chance of winning this tournament. Yeah, definitely there, man. It's, it's pretty interesting. So um, what else are you working on for this week, man? What are you looking forward to when you talk think about the world of combat sports? Uh, I, I think it's coming out. I did a breakdown for Angela Hill, the kind, the good, the bad, and the ugly of her game, the attributes, her technical skills, and strategical skills. 
That should be coming out on MMA ratings tomorrow, maybe Saturday. I'm not quite sure. Maybe tonight, for all I know. I haven't checked. And then recently, I did a, I did an article talking about how the decline in ratings for mixed martial arts has impacted people such as yourself and, and myself who cover the sport, do analysis, do coverage of events, how it affected us financially, and how it affect, affects the future of people who are going to be mixed martial arts journalists. And then most recently, and that was on Combat Press, and most recently I did another article for Combat Press talking about how fighters are actually the biggest obstacle for fighters getting fighters pay higher because of the fact that nobody's willing to put their career, the same thing I said on the show, essentially more in depth, nobody's willing to put their career, their potential, or their future on the line for the betterment of others. And until the fighters care more about themselves and the fighters as a whole, they're going to consistently lose because the organization and the money makers, they're on the same side. They're fighting for the same cause. The fighters are fighting for individual causes. That's why they can't get any leverage and that's why they can't make a dent in anything. You can't have one against 50. Those 50 are all on the same page. They have the same goal, make the company money that benefits me. The fighters don't think that way because if I make other fighters money, that might not make me money and nobody's willing to take the hit or make the sacrifice necessary to get everybody ahead. And that's why fighters are constantly gonna be at odds and that's why fighters are constantly gonna be behind the eight ball in negotiations. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in seeing um, what is going to come out of this Leslie Hill development, or Leslie Smith development here with um, that association that she's beginning to create. Um, Al Iaquinta has stepped up and, and volunteered his services as, uh, I think, secretary or and treasurer. the guy who walked away. Remember that. He was willing to walk away. He didn't like his contract. He didn't just cry about it and kept fighting. I'll just go do real estate. Peace. Yep, and he was willing to walk away. So you know this guy's willing to put his... Um, name on the line and what's crazy is that he's not only is willing to put his name on his line but he uh well, he performs when he steps into the octagon we know this upcoming fight against paul Felder is probably going to be crazy and it's going to be a great fight to watch and the ufc recognizes that and they're struggling to get um those type of fights on cards so it'd be interesting to see how he leverages that along with this um opportunity within the uh association space yeah, most guys actually wait until they're on the decline when they start losing and they st stop getting special treatment. That's when they start talking about money. And that by that time, nobody cares. You have to talk while you have the belt. You have to talk while you're on your winning streak. You have to talk while you're still hot. And But when they're hot, they don't want to say anything because they're afraid it's going to affect their bottom line. And unfortunately, it works in reverse. By not talking about it when you're on top, but when you, when you start talking about it when you lose, people are like, oh, he's just bitter. He got cut from the UFC. Of course he's going to say that. Why wasn't he, If they've been doing it for years, why not hear about it for years? So Aliquinta, because he has the freedom and another line of work to make money and, and provide for himself in, he, he doesn't have to be beholden to them. He doesn't have to jump when they say jump. If they don't want to give him a fight he wants, he'll go do something else. If they don't give him the, the money he wants, he'll go do something else. Or he'll fight and he'll still complain because He's not stuck as a fighter. He has other options. And when you have other options, you become dangerous because they can't control you. Definitely. And that's, and that's the big key word there. Um, I am working on a bunch of content as usual, doing stuff for pro, for pro wrestling and some other um, stats. I'm working on another piece for ratings tonight and some grappling stuff as usual, man. It's going to be another um, busy weekend. But, you know, as always, I'm looking forward to being a part of it. Yeah, I don't think you know how to do anything except be busy. Busy weekend for you is like 
waking up for me. It's like breathing. Yeah, definitely, man. That's always the case, man. So as always, man, I appreciate your time for joining us on the show. Definitely thank you to uh, Phil Murphy for giving us some of your time tonight as well. And as always, man, be sure to like and share our content. Uh, Shawan, let everybody know where they can find us. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, um, MMA Rating, SoundCloud. You can find us on YouTube as well. And um, like I said, we've been getting a lot of lot of views from you guys. We really we appreciate the interest, and we hope you appreciate the time and work we put into this for on your behalf. Thank you, guys, and everyone have a great night. Yeah, take it easy, man.